Well, hey, uh, we've, uh, Pastor Tom's been doing kind of a thing through the Bible, and as he told you last week, we're going to take a break from that for a few weeks and just kind of tell you what God is putting on our hearts for this community. And, uh, and so it's, it's my turn to do that. So here we go. And uh, it's funny because we take this very seriously. And uh, we know that the scriptures say that teachers are held to a different standard. And it uh, scares the dickens out of me sometimes. <laughs> but God is good. And I was praying this week as, and just asking for, for a word for you guys, for us. Because I always have to preach to myself first. It's like, God, what do we, what do we need to hear? And I got uh, Mark chapter 8 and specifically verse 36. Where Jesus says, what good, is it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? It's a very small line in the Bible, but it means so much. It means so much. And it made me, it made me stop and think, what, what, is, what is my soul worth to me? What is our soul's worth? worth to us because you know we we have that caricature we see sometimes in literature or old movies or tv shows where someone signs their soul to the devil to get like you know a million dollars or whatever there's the old twilight zone is one of my favorite ones where there's the guy who's having the failing business and the devil shows up and makes a deal with him if you sell me your soul I'll, i'll make your business great and the devil just happens to look like burgess meredith in that one i don't know and it becomes a cartoon, and it becomes a joke almost, and we, we sweep it under the carpet and don't realize how important that really is. And, and it made me think about that, and real life is not like that. We don't, as believers, we don't have the devil pop up on our doorstep someday going, hey, I've got a contract, would you like to sign it? But instead, in our culture, a lot of times we allow our souls to be pecked away piece by piece, little by little. And we rationalize it with phrases like, oh, I can, I can watch that on TV or watch that movie, and it just doesn't affect me like it does some people. Or I, I can tell those people, you know, what they, I think they need to hear versus what God's calling me to say to them or the truth, maybe. And it won't hurt, Right? Hey, if I step on a coworker or two to get where I need to go, the, the ends will justify the means, right? Pecking away at our souls, at who God has made us. Husbands and wives who say, well, if I just don't tell her, technically that's not a lie. And it breaks my heart because it ravages our souls. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful family of God. Thank you for this word you've given us. Father, I ask that you would open our our hearts and our minds to what you would say to us today, Father. And anything that's on these pages that are not of you, I pray would just be gone. We don't need to hear that. We want to hear from you today, Lord. Use me. Open up. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's put this in context in this chapter here. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. Uh, This is in Mark, 
It's the second book of the, of the New Testament. There's Matthew, then Mark. If you ever want to, like, if you're sitting there going, I'd really like to read my Bible, but I don't know where to start, Mark is a great book to start with. It's 16 chapters long, and in 16 chapters, you get to see the whole life and ministry of Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's a good idea to know who you're following. This is a great place to start. Mark, the book of Mark, great. We're going to read from chapter 8, though. It says this, uh, starting in 31, it's talk, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Then he began to teach to them that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Hallelujah! He spoke plainly about this, and Peter, God bless Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Do not have in mind the, co- the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whomever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me... And for the gospel, we'll save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Something to think about. So here's Jesus. He's with his disciples and he's with his followers. And when they talk about that, there's a, there, there are two groups we're talking about. We're talking about the 12 disciples that he, he chose and called to follow him. And then this group of followers that shows up everywhere Jesus goes. And he put forth this call to discipleship. Because putting things in context here, you need to understand what was going on in those days. See, Messiahs were a dime a dozen. There were, there were tons of guys that were claiming to be the Messiah. And they'd gather people together and they'd promise all sorts of things. And for some reason, their promises never happened. And Jesus, in this part of Mark, is calling them to what true discipleship is. And it's not all glory and it's not all wonderful and it's not all peachy like the other guys we're claiming it would be. And he's not just the flavor of the month. He's the real Messiah, the real deal. Early in the passage, we see Jesus telling his disciples about what was going to come. What was coming up for him. He was predicting his death and his resurrection. And in verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Peter scolded the Son of God. You gotta love Peter. And you know what? Peter might have had the best of intentions. We don't know what he said. For all we know, he could have been like, Jesus, no, say it isn't so. You're the Messiah. Come on, man. You're gonna bring God's kingdom on earth. Let's get it done. We don't know. It could have been the best of intentions. But the point was, what he was doing was putting his own wishes, his own desires, and even his own fears above the will of the Lord. 
Jesus was telling them everything they needed to know to understand that he was there to fulfill the prophecies that had been told hundreds of years ago by the prophet Isaiah, and Peter just couldn't get it. His own desires took over. He's going, but but you're Jesus. You're supposed to do all this cool stuff. Right? The interesting thing here, though, is when he reprimanded or rebuked Peter back, he didn't look at Peter and get in his face. He turned, it says. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. So it's like he wasn't just talking to Peter. He's going, look, you all need to understand this. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Pretty tough words. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It says Jesus turned. He was just telling everyone, come on, guys, we're all in this. You need to understand. There are two things I want you to understand about this verse. The first is what he said was, get behind me. Peter was his disciple. Disciple is a follower. He was the, the teacher, the rabbi, the master. And the place for a disciple is where? Behind the master. He wasn't looking at Peter and going, get out of here. You doubted me, you're out of here, buddy. We're down to 11, let's find someone else. He said, no, no, get behind me. It's time for you to take your rightful place. Remember where you were behind me, following me? Get back in line, buddy. I love you. I still want you with me, but you need to be in the right place with the right mindset. But he called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. This was, this was extreme. This was exaggeration, overstatement probably, for the sake of saying When it comes to the will of man and the will of God, we are as far apart as us and Satan. Okay? He wasn't wasn't telling Peter he was the evil one. He wasn't the ultimate accuser. Bad attentions aside, though, Peter epically blundered here. He didn't trust Jesus. That's really what it came down to. He didn't trust Jesus to do what he said he was going to do. And this underscores the seriousness of Peter's failure as a disciple at that point in time. Remember, remember here, Peter loved Jesus. Peter was not only one of the twelve, he was kind of one of that inner circle, too, of three. He was the guy that gave up everything. One of Jesus' first disciples that was called left his nets, gave up everything. He was the one who was so audacious that at a simple command from Jesus in the middle of the night, he left the safety of his boat to walk on water. That's Peter. Peter was the one, the one disciple, who scandalously and blatantly called out Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16. And in that crushing moment of selfishness, fear, he let his own worldly desires, his own unfounded fears, get in the way of his faith in Jesus. Boy, that speaks to me. 
That speaks to me. As I was like typing that out, I'm going, well, that's me. I've done that. I do that. But the best part is Jesus doesn't say, get out of here. I don't want anything more to do with you. He says, get back in line. Get behind me. Follow me again. Take your rightful place. He says this, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And this is a trap. This is where we tend to fall down. This is where I tend to fall down, is putting my own concerns before the concerns of God. Even when we do things with the best intentions, seriously, even when we do things that are great and wonderful, we try to get out there and do nice things, if it's not God-centered, if it is not God-sanctified, if it is not God-initiated, then it is not part of God's plan. It's our own will exerting ourselves. And again, can we do good things? Absolutely. Can we do nice things outside the will of God? People do it all the time. It's called charity and it's wonderful. But when you do things inside the will of God, it's not charity, it's life changing. It's dynamic and it blows away everything of the world. And it's good. And it's good. We need to put Jesus first. We need to follow the master. Walk in his footsteps. Verse 34. Then he, he's talking about Jesus again, then he called the crowd to him. So he's getting not only his 12 disciples, but everybody that's coming along. Whoever wants to be my disciple, here are the rules. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Did you notice he didn't say anything about, hey, if you want to follow me, come to Sunday school, say a little 30-second prayer, 30 second prayer, ask Jesus into your life, and then just go on with life as usual. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to follow him. It's an active journey. And... Jesus is calling us, guys, to an uncompromising decision and a radical change. When Jesus called the twelve, they left everything. Their lives changed radically. And that's what he's calling us to. We'll get into that in just a minute here. This passage, verse 34 and 35, tells us two things. It describes the cost of discipleship. You want to follow me. You want to not be part of the in crowd or whatever. You got to understand, I'm not the in crowd. I'm the Messiah. That's what he's saying. The cost of true discipleship starts with denying ourselves. Our own ambitions. Our own agendas. For the sake of following Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. It's not easy all the time. It is hard not to just go, but I want that. But I want that. But I want to do that. That looks like more fun. And understand, he's not saying here that don't, don't plan ahead. 
don't be ambitious. He's not saying that. He's, he's created us with good sense in our heads that we do need to plan ahead. We do need to use those talents and gifts he has to go be responsible, to work, to provide for our families and things like that, right? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying take those things and put them under the umbrella of the will of God. And maybe the work that you're in is not the work he wants you to do. Maybe he's got something better for you, and we just need to listen. He says, take up the cross. This is intense. This is where it gets really, really real. And I got to admit, pastors and churches, we have watered this down and rationalized it to turn it into something that it's no way near and it's comfortable and it's nice. And we said, well, if you think about it or if you're willing to do this, but it is saying, Boom, take up your cross. What he's saying is you need to acknowledge the fact that if you are going to follow me, there's a really good chance that A, you are going to probably suffer in life. And B, there's a good chance you may die for your faith. It always gets quiet when you say stuff like that in church. Sign me up. That's what we're called to. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't want to die. I definitely don't want to suffer. But he's saying, you need to understand that if you follow me, this could happen. It's part, it's part of the deal. It's the cost of discipleship, guys. The other thing this, this passage does is it puts everything into an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective. In other words... God thinks huge. And our linear existence, our linear chronology is so small compared to what God is. It's like a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean. Our life is a breath at best in the the realm of eternity. Whether we live to be 50 or 80 or 105 In eternity, it's a blip on the map. And right now you're going, but, but, but I like my life. Well, I do too. I have to live to be a, you know old crotchety old man up here preaching at you someday. But if that's not God's will and he has other plans for me and I need to be somewhere else, I know that the worst thing that's going to happen to me is someone will kill me, I'll go home and be with the Father. The worst thing that can happen to me is that someone sends me home to be with Jesus. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And there are people who are doing that around the world. We just don't see it as much here in America. It's brutal. The cost of discipleship is hard. Okay? When we accept that, though, this great eternity, it does a couple things for us. It gives us an amazing peace. And it gives us a security to know, you know what, whatever happens, we'll, we'll be okay. It's not easy. Jesus never said it would be. That's a, that's a cruise ship, if you want to know what that is. He didn't promise you a cruise. He promised you an awesome life. A hard life, maybe. A life with lots of bumps and bruises along the way. But a good life an abundant life, the Bible says. It's good stuff. Let me tell you a story real quick. 
So a lot of you who've, who've known us a little bit and have heard me speak up here before understand that, that Donna, my wife, and I, we, we for years thought we were going to be moving to Eastern Europe as missionaries to work with refugees, kind of like that are coming through right now. And um, in 2009, uh, my first time over, I was in Budapest, Hungary, and I was at a church, and we're talking, and this great guy comes up to me, huge smile on his face, and and he comes up and he goes, brother! And I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> never met you, but cool. That's part of the family of God. It doesn't matter where you go. And um, he, they, they call him George. His name is Gerga. But it's hard to say Gerga. But his name's George. And I met his, his teenage daughter, Joanna. And they're from Egypt. He's an Egyptian man, and he said, uh, let me share my life with you. So we sat down at a table and had some food together, and he shared his life with me. He said, uh, when I was in Egypt, I was a jeweler. I was a jeweler to many famous people, very high-ranking officials. In fact, I gained so much notoriety that I became the personal jeweler of the Prince of Jordan. I had gold, I had jewels, I had two Mercedes, he tells me. Lived in a big house, and then he did something. He got saved. He got baptized. And a couple days later, opened the door, and there's a bunch of nice gentlemen from the government. They came in his house, and they took everything. They took his cars. They took, he says, I had gold and jewels laying there where I was working. They took that. They took his clothes, all but a few. They took everything that he and Joanna had. And as they were leaving, one of the men turned to him and said, we'll be back tomorrow. And if you're here, we'll take your life. And that night, he and Joanna took two suitcases, and they filled with the clothes that they, a few clothes that they had left them and a few dollars worth of things that they left them. And they made their way to a train station, and they headed out. They ended up at a refugee camp in the southern part of Hungary. And uh, by the time I got to know him, they had uh, obtained refugee status, uh, something like we would call a green card here, and had a small job, and a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, the cool thing was, I actually, the last time I was back in 2011, I got to see George and John again and smile on his face because they took everything except for the one thing they couldn't take. Jesus. Jesus. They could not take Jesus away. They could not take his joy Away. They could not take his freedom in Christ away. He said, Tony, I have to tell you, since you've seen me last, I am now in a bigger apartment. I have two rooms. And I'm working as a cook. And some might say that they were being foolish. Maybe they should have just kept their mouth shut. God wouldn't care, right? 
Some may say that their cost to their discipleship was too extreme. Some may say to God, why? That's not fair. Why would you do that? They were being obedient. You took everything. Why would you let that happen? Some would, but not George. Not George. George is free. George comes to this little tiny um, church in the middle of, of Budapest, and he prays, and he worships, and he's not afraid to do so. Joanna is now in university. And they're getting there. He thinks he's the richest man alive. I think he is too. So I have to look at this, this verse. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And I look at that, and it's a rhetorical question asked by Jesus. And the one thing that really st- stuck out to me, because when I first learned this Bible verse, it was, what, what can it profit a man to gain a fortune and lose his soul? And the actual word there is forfeit. To lose something is I lost my keys. To forfeit is I gave them up. This is a willful act. I don't want to give up my soul. What's it worth? The dangers we fall into is when we ask God to be part of our lives. Instead of all of our life. Hey God, I want you to be part of my life. No, God, I want you to rule my life as Lord and Savior. We give him the reins for a little bit until he does something really weird. Right? God, I just want you to reign in my life. Okay, well, I'm going to need you to go to Africa. Yeah, that ain't happening. Okay, well then, how about we put you at the, the homeless shelter and you're going to feed people? No, let's keep praying. Maybe something else will come up. What else you got for me? We love to have Jesus in part of our life because of that security of salvation, but there's so much more to life. We are called to follow Jesus. Follow. It's active. It is a journey. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But it's a journey, and it's really fun. And instead of following him at all costs, we water it down and rationalize and go, well, when he said I had to do that, he really didn't mean that. He just meant I had to be nice to people. Oh, he didn't mean I had to leave my job. He just meant I, I had to be smile at people at work. When I was at a church in Cincinnati, a friend and his wife, uh, actually they're both friends of mine, uh, came and, and asked for some prayer. Came to my office. I said, I'd love to pray with you guys. What's going on? Well, we're having some issues in our, in our marriage. And they had been married just about a year and a half or two years at the time. I said, okay, well, what, what's going on? And he said, well, you understand, I, I work at this this." restaurant this place and and um the girls there dress really immodestly let's say and i'm really struggling and it's really hurting my marriage relationship my relationship with my wife because it's causing me to think some things that aren't so pure and despite the fact that we pray about it every day i struggle more and more each day And every once in a while, I get these good epiphanies that just come to me. And I said, have you thought about, like, quitting? (laughs) 
both of them, as if in stereo, said, Are you kidding? We just bought a house. Okay. But what? What does it matter if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Because every day at work, those thoughts in his mind were eating away at his soul and eating away at his marriage. And I said, I'm really concerned. He says, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just pray more. And his wife says, yeah, I'll just make sure he's covered with prayer when he's at work every day. We are called to resist the devil. We are called to flee, folks. And there is no job worth it. There is no status worth it. There is no car worth it. There is no agenda or plan that we have in our life. And as I heard that, and as I've thought about this, and as I've worked through this teaching and whittled it down and let it get down to the very core, I realized what I have a problem with is not necessarily financial or gender or this. It's control. Letting God have full control of my life. That's what it all comes down to. There's nothing. Hear me, people. There is nothing. Those are all capitals, by the way, that is worth the cost of your soul. There's absolutely nothing. Jesus died to save you. The price has been paid. He's taking care of it to save you. So let me give you some hope. Because I got to admit, when I tell you I preach to myself first, I mean it. I need to hear these words daily. Come on, Tony, it's time to get up. It's time to do it. It's time to follow God. It's time to listen to God. And if you don't like it, you keep going anyway. And I fall. And I got to pick myself back up. And I need to get back behind him. But there's hope. And here's the hope of the gospel. If you are facing trials, if life is hard right now, trust God. It's easy to be said, isn't it? But here's the promise. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he will always glorify himself through you in all of your circumstances. That's awesome. How's about this hope? If you're tempted to trust in your own abilities, your own talents, kind of like Tom was talking about last week, remember that? That kind of the God of myself. Remember that all that is from God. Those are all gifts. And take time to thank Him for them. It changes your whole attitude. Oh, I can do that. Because God has given me that ability to do it. Thank you, Lord. Shifts your whole paradigm. And if you're not hearing from God, listen to him. Sounds simple. If you're not hearing, to God, hearing from God, are you praying? Are you listening when you pray? Are you just rambling? Do you seek his will or is it a Christmas list? When was the last time you fasted? When was the last time you really got down on your face or walked the wall? 
or just saw God? When's the last time you set your alarm half an hour early? Because you know that you could not get through that day unless God was with you. I need to do it more, people. I'm confessing to you right now. So join me in that. Join me in that. The band's going to come on up. Let me hit a couple things for you here at the end. Just sum this up with a few points here is this. First of all, we are called to be Jesus' disciples, his followers. It's an active lifestyle. We're not called to just say a prayer and sit on our butts. Okay? Second thing is we are called to deny ourselves, our own selfish ambitions, and put our agendas aside for the sake of his agenda. And I'll tell you this, guys. Here's the encouragement here. Listen to it. When you do that, life's awesome. There's such a peace. There's such, you know, it's like when you go somewhere and you've never been there before, and, and you've never seen the streets before, and you're driving, and you're confused, versus someone saying, I'll drive you. I'll take you there. I'll make sure you get there safely. Still hit a couple uh, potholes and stuff, but we get there, and we get there safely. God will do that. We're called to take up our cross and follow him. Understand that life is not always easy, but it is rewarding. It is worth it. And on that day... When he calls you home, you're going to stand before the Lord and worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is awesome. And I can't wait for that. That's going to be good. And the result is saving our souls for an everlasting life with God the Father. Which to me just makes me want to go, yes! And when you think about that, if it doesn't make you go, yes! Then think about your relationship with Jesus. Because this is what it's about. You don't have to wait till you die to get eternal life, people. It starts right now. And living with him is like, yeah, give me some more. I love Jesus. I love what he's doing. Let him do it for you. Let him do it for you. As we sing this song, just take that into your heart. See where we need to go from there. Take a moment of personal time and say, God, we're... Where do you need me to be? The song is just perfect for that. It's singing a prayer. So let's just, uh, we're going to take a few minutes to worship, and then we'll uh, close you out here in just a few minutes.